Welcome back to the Outskirts Podcast with Tanner and friends. If you missed episode one, go ahead and get caught up now. And you may want to get prayed up while you're at it, because we are picking up with Mike, right where he left us, in the demon-infested town of Sulphur, Louisiana. Brace yourself for the second half of On the Outskirts of Religion. Warning. Themes addressed in this episode may be inappropriate for younger listeners. During that same time in Sulphur, Louisiana, where where I saw this demonstration of of evil, I was coming home from school one day, and and because of the legalism that was a part of the Pentecostalism that I was being reared in, uh, we were not allowed to go to pool halls or even bowling alleys because bowling alleys had pool tables and and they sold uh, alcoholic beverages and my parents didn't approve. But one day, walking home from school, my friends and I stopped at the local bowling alley to get a Coke. We didn't stay for long. I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. So we walked on home, and when I got home, I opened the door to see my mother standing in the dining room ironing, and tears were coursing down her cheek, and she had been crying. And I said, what's wrong, mother? And she blurted out, you've been to the bowling alley, haven't you, Michael? I said, yes, mother, how did you know? Did somebody call and tell you? She said, no, Michael. She said, God tells me. For the next few years, when I got home in the middle of the night, my mother would be up and she would say to me, the first one, I'll never forget the time because she said, Michael, what happened at 11 o'clock? I said, I was just driving along and I guess I hit a slick spot in the highway, an oil spot and my car spun like a top, driving over the Atchafalaya Basin there around Baton Rouge, where if you go off the highway, there's a steep drop and I didn't drop off. Unfortunately, there were no other cars that were affected. But I happened to look at my watch and it was exactly 11 o'clock. And I said, how did you know something happened, mother? And she said, God woke me up to pray for you. That happened on two other occasions. So for the rest of my life, or the rest of her life, I should say, any significant happening in my life, I learned to call mom and say, Mom, I I need you to pray. 
later on, after I was called into ministry, your mom and I went to this church in Northeast Mississippi, and uh, a bunch of us pastors decided to start praying together. On Saturday mornings at nine o'clock, we would meet at a different church every Saturday. The very first prayer meeting was at the church that I pastored. Well, at about 10 minutes till nine, I got to the church early enough to unlock the doors, turn on the lights. The phone rang in the church and this lady called. I answered the phone and she said, Hello, I need your help. And I said, I will certainly try. She said, I'm demon possessed. Well, I had learned that the powers of hell really do attack people and uh, the attacks can be oppressive, uh, but there is something called possession as well. And I was explaining the difference to her and she said, sir, you don't have to explain the difference. She said, I know full well, I am the latter. And she said, I have for the last two years carried on a sexual affair with a demon spirit every night. <gasps> And she said, I can't control it. He controls me. And uh, when she told me that, you know, chills went up and down my spine. I hair stood up on my neck. I sensed over the phone something phenomenal that was happening. And I said, well, if, if you want to be free from this, you come to church. Because this morning, some other pastors are coming to our church for a, a prayer meeting. Before she hung up, I said, just out of curiosity, how did you get my name and phone number? She said, late last night, I was watching a television ministry out of New Orleans. This huge church has a 24-hour call-in line, and I called. And if you're watching from home and you need a prayer, you just call the number on the bottom of your television screen right now. Our prayer warriors are standing by to pray with you. Somebody at that church gave me your name and your phone number and said that you would help me. the pastor came that day, and this was my neighboring pastor. While she was driving over there, I, I told him, I felt I, I owed it to him, and I said, Jesse, this lady's coming. On, on the telephone call, she said, I'm not a I'm not a crazy quack. She said, I have a master's degree in early childhood development. My husband is, is a professor in the science department at this local university. And she said, I, I want you to know that so you, you don't think that you're talking to somebody that's mentally ill. I said, okay, and I appreciate that. I knew all this about her and I shared it with my neighboring pastor. And he said, okay. And uh, when she came, I'll never forget it because when she walked in, in the door, uh, the atmosphere changed. I could sense a strangeness. I don't know how to describe it. I greeted her and introduced her to my neighboring pastor. And, uh, and she sat on the first pew and I reviewed the information that she had given me. And I said, is that right? And she said, 
That's right. And I said, and you told me that you wanted to be free from this. She said, absolutely. I said, good, because we're going to pray that the demonic forces that have tortured you for the last couple of years will be broken in Jesus name. And Tanner, as soon as I said Jesus, she fell forward off of that pew onto the floor and she began to writhe like a snake and strange voices began to come out of her mouth. And as soon as it happened, I was 12 years old again and back in that church in Sulphur where my dad had pastored. Listen here, church. Unless you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you better not walk but run out of this building. These demons are going to be looking for a new home once they leave this woman. If you stay, it better be to pray. And I heard these guttural voices coming out of this this little woman. And I got to tell you, a holy fear gripped me as I realized this is real. I never before sensed the degree of fear that I did at that moment when I was being addressed by these demon spirits. And it was more than one. They began to identify themselves. We and as they did, the only thing I knew to do, Tanner, was I began to plead the blood of Jesus over her and to quote passages of scripture where Jesus spoke to these demonic spirits and told them to leave. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out. My pastor friend stopped me and he said, Mike, I've got to go. Um, Mike, I, I got an appointment. Yeah, sorry, buddy, I got to go. And by now it's about 11 o'clock. Your mother and I, Tanner, lived in the parsonage right behind the church. So I asked him to wait for just a moment. I went back to the office. This was before cell phones in the 1970s. I picked up the phone and I called your mom and I told her very quickly what was transpiring. And I said, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. She said, I'll be right there, Michael. And she and I then resumed praying for this lady for a couple of hours until finally we witnessed a physical transformation. It was like a thunderstorm had stopped and all of a sudden the sunlight broke through and this lady's face lit up and I said, you're free, aren't you? And she said, I'm free in Jesus' name. She could not say his name before without pushback from these demonic spirits. And they left her. Hi friends, are you scared? Well, stay with us. If you need to, rebuke that fear and get your breathing under control. While I provide a little context for the next portion of the story. And how can I do that? Well, in case you didn't catch it, Mike is my father. And in this story, I'm on the scene. Suburban DC, during the height of an era of fear that is almost exclusively spoken of 
with the tone of incredulity and remorse. It was the 1980s, and the satanic panic was in full swing. So I'm in elementary school, tagging along behind my big sister and her girlfriends in the neighborhood. They all went to Hoover Junior High, and they were hip. They were hip to the fashion, hip to the music, they watched MTV, and they were hip to what was really going on behind the scenes. Behind the suburban veneer of what was then the wealthiest county in the country, with its pristine hedgerows and polished Corinthian columns, was lurking an evil that just maybe was even worse than the ghoulies, the gremlins, and all the Michael Myers and the Jason movies combined. Unspeakable evil. Except we did speak of it. It's Halloween, little boy. And you know what that means. The kidnappers are out every night in their kidnapper vans looking for the perfect sacrifice. Don't. You'll scare them. But you should be okay. They want blonde-haired, blue-eyed virgins. What's a virgin? Dirty knees, look at these. As I tried to make sense of my first glimpse of a bra that wasn't hanging from the side of a laundry basket, my little mind trailed off into a scenario where a van pulls up beside me, and without even allowing me the chance to refuse an offer of candy, just as McGruff the crime dog had told me to do. Every day in this country, 60 kids disappear. A masked man snatches me up and away I go. Into the darkness of whatever a sacrifice is. One thing I know, whatever it is, it sounds bad outside of church. Now is a good time to say, I never once heard my dad mention from the pulpit any fragment of the stories you have heard or will hear. Neither did he discuss them around the house with us, his family. I guess he just kept them in his pocket, like that little book of notes his father had carried. A private affirmation of his faith. I only learned of these events after I had graduated from high school. But I do remember here and there, in those early years, late at night, hearing that phone ring. We moved to the, uh, the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. The church owned a little, a little house that was a parsonage, but it was too small for our family to live in. So I found us a place to live, uh, but I took a lot of humorous abuse over it because it was on Devilwood Drive. It was a great house. It was plenty big enough for our family. The lady that owned it rented it to us for whatever I could get for rent from the little parsonage. And that was no small miracle in that real estate market way back then. But while we were living there, one night during supper, the phone rang. And I answered it. And the voice on the other end began to tell me a frightful story of uh, 
satanic occult activity that she was involved in. And uh, I was totally unprepared for such a phone call. Uh, we had one of those long cords, you know, that would go all over the house. So I walked out of the kitchen into the dining room and I sat and listened to this tale and this young lady began to describe all the things that she was involved in. She was part of a satanic cult that met on a regular basis out in the woods on the Maryland, Pennsylvania state line. And that she had uh, given birth to a baby that became a human sacrifice at one of their satanic occult rituals. She said, just in case you're thinking that I'm some nutcase that just was let out of St. Elizabeth, that was a big mental hospital in DC. I want you to know that this occult group that I'm a part of has Supreme Court justices, United States senators and congressmen and local judges and politicians that I can give you names. This is not some fairy tale that I'm making up. Did and she name names? Mom, what? Did she name names? No. She said, do you want me to give you that? I said, no. I, I'm I, Because at that juncture, I still didn't believe her. And as she's relating this story to me, she begins to cry, to sob. And uh, and she informed me in that conversation, that very first conversation, that she was once again pregnant, that she had become pregnant by one of the members of that uh, occult group. And that I forget how many months pregnant she was, but that this was going to be another child that would be sacrificed to Satan, but that she had changed her mind and she didn't want to do that. And and that became the first of many phone calls, Tanner, that would disrupt our lives in, in a significant way. That phone call was so troubling that when I hung the phone up, I was actually trembling. Never forget that. And I sat there in the dining room for a few minutes until you all had finished eating your dinner and your mom was cleaning up the kitchen and I went back into the kitchen and I sat down and I and I told her all that had just transpired. She looked with wild-eyed wonder at me like I had told her a fairy tale, uh, you know, that was just impossible to believe. And she said, did she tell you her name, Michael? And I said, yes, she did. And uh, she said, well, how did you leave it? I said, I told her, if you wanna be free, you come to church Sunday morning. She said, I will come. Well, she didn't. What she did was began a series of phone calls that would last for over a year. They never came at the same time of night. They never came the same day of the week. It wasn't an every night occurrence, but it was so persistent that it became very obvious to me quickly that this was an attack from hell itself. As soon as I answered the phone, she would start screaming. Hello. The only thing I knew to do was begin to plead the blood of Jesus and quote scripture. And that would only make her scream louder. But I would do that until she hung up the phone. And she would become so frustrated every time that she would hang up the phone. When you pick up the phone, 
Yes. She's immediately going into a scream, or is she trying to dialogue with you? She No, she would start with a dialogue, something to the effect of, it's me again, and she would use her name, which was Dana. We would turn off the ringers on all the phones in the house every night, except the one that was right by my bed, so that when it rang, I would hear it and immediately answer it. Did she ever demonstrate any supernatural ability? Yes, she did. There was a, a young doctor in the church. He was an army doctor. And his wife was one of the ladies in the church that would sometimes substitute for the church secretary, come in and answer phones. And on this one occasion, uh, the doctor had called and told his wife to ask me if they could take us to lunch. So I called home and told your mom. And when they get there, they all come downstairs because my office was downstairs and there was an exit there. And we were standing in my office and the phone rang. Now the secretary who normally would answer it upstairs was in my office. So she went over to my desk and was going to pick up the phone. And I said, I'll get it. I picked it up and the voice on the other end says, well, you sure have a lovely office. She didn't have to identify herself because now I recognize her voice. I said, well, this is the first time you've called me in the daytime and at my at the church instead of my home. Thank you for that. She said, you've got a lovely office. I said, how would you know? Have you been here? And she said, no, but I can see it. I said, you can see it? She said, yeah. And she said, by the way, that's a nice blue suit you're wearing. I looked at your mom and eyebrows raised and she said, and your wife's got on a beautiful dress, colorful dress. And so does that couple that's with you. They're all dressed so not. And she said, and uh, is that your guitar? And I see in the corner leaning up. I said, I, so I started looking around for a hidden camera. I'm wondering how this is happening. And uh, I, I could not believe. So I, I remember walking around all and I didn't find anything. I looked in the bookshelves. I didn't see anything. I said, how are you doing this? And she said, I can see. And uh, I said, well, I'm about to go to lunch with this, this couple. And she said, okay, have a nice lunch. And she hung up the phone. And I don't know how to describe how I felt then, Tanner. Again, there I was part of a ministerium, a, a, a wide circle of pastors. And I began to share with them things that were happening and, and ask them to pray for me. But the phone calls didn't stop, and they became more combative. A few months later, one of my neighboring pastors, who also knew about this, had, had been praying for me. He calls me on a Monday morning, and he said, Mike, you won't believe what happened to me last night. I said, what? He said, my wife and I were eat, eating dinner uh, at a restaurant there in Silver Spring. And he said, this lady sprang up from a booth just a few rows down from where we were sitting, ran over to my table with a steak knife in her, in her hand and tried to stab me. 
Fortunately, some of the employees grabbed her. They called the police and they came and arrested her. And he said, what was the name of the lady that's been torturing you for all these months? I said, her name was Dana. He said, that's her. That's the name that she gave. He said, they arrested her and took her away in a squad car. I said, I've never seen her. He described her to me. I said, I have no idea what she looks like, but yes, that's her name. My God, Mike. He said, we are in a dark place. And with that, our first series on the outskirts of religion comes to a close. Thank you for listening. I'll leave you with the words of Baton Rouge police detective, rhythm and blues man turned preacher, my late grandfather. A person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. Your experience does matter. Everyone has a story. And we'd love to hear yours. On the Outskirts Podcast with Tanner and Friends. Please submit written or audio summary of your story to outskirts at tannerandfriends.com. Yep. Hi, friends. Can we talk about mustaches for a moment? Perhaps you love them, or maybe you hate them. But one thing I'll never understand is mustache indifference. The 1992 film Folks, starring Don Amici and a sans-stash Tom Selleck, was fantastic, but I can hardly watch as my suspension of disbelief becomes nearly impossible. I mean, what was he thinking? The real Tom Selleck wouldn't be caught driving a red Ferrari with the top down without his signature chevron of upper lip hair. Well, I've gotten off track. The art and fashion of upper lip hair is here to stay. But for some of us less fortunate would-be lip hair cultivators, nature has not bequeathed us with the necessary means for, well, growing lip hair. Fortunately, the market has borne a wide array of prosthetic mustaches to suit every taste, and they're just a click away. Recently, I found myself trying on such a mustache and found, as I had in the past, that the sticky backing just didn't do the job. The last thing I want is to be digging through the bottom of the mango crate in the produce section for my detached prosthetic mustache. That's where Felix's all-natural mustache adhesive comes into play. Since I began using Felix's all-natural mustache adhesive, I've never felt more confident leaning over to sniff the charcuterie tray, holding that karaoke mic as close as I want to, or even going in for the long kiss with my beautiful wife, Haley. And Felix's all-natural mustache adhesive is suited for application to nearly all styles. 
From the dolly to the walrus, Felix's all-natural mustache adhesive is sure to keep your upper lip looking just as good as it does in your mind. Thanks, Felix's all-natural mustache adhesive. Toothbrush, pencil, full Manchu, horseshoe. Fake mustache, won't stay put. What are you going to do? Walrus, imperial, English, Hungarian, dangling, fake stash, everybody steady on. Can't be some Elliot in Tombstone this Halloween. If you don't, look them up. Call the number on your screen. Carl Felix's all-natural mustache adhesive.